Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So you practiced a little bit of uh, mindful communication this afternoon. You remember what it was like, right? You remember doing that? Uh, (laughs) Remember what it was like to talk as you first opened your mouth? You think, oh my goodness, uh, there's a whole other reality of other minds that I have to, that I'm interacting with besides this one. Um, And it's probably gotten you thinking a little bit ahead, usually at this point in the retreat when you can see the end in sight, it's natural to topple forward to what's, what's coming. Have you noticed that today? The beginning of the retreat, it's what did I lift, leave behind and did I turn off the gas and uh, take care of all my bills? In the, the middle, it's what's for lunch, you know? And, and towards the end, it's oh, what am I going back to? Um, so if you have those thoughts, it's, it's uh, quite natural and a rich experience to just see how the mind topples forward and how you can always come back to here. The present is waiting for you, inviting you to, uh, to meet it and um, be present for the present and for your life. Tonight I wanted to Um, focus on one of the steps in the sequence of 10 that particularly feels appropriate to explore at this point as you're going back in the world. And that is the, the powerful natural expression of a joyful heart, uh, which is compassion. We've talked a lot about self-compassion and, and the caring heart, but um, now we want to focus specifically on our expressing our practice out in the world. Mm-hmm. And in this sequence, remember yesterday I went over the, the sequence and from loving ourselves, the seventh of these wholesome states, to connection with others, both in terms of forgiveness and loving kindness and uh, sympathetic joy. Um, then the, the next step, the ninth step, uh, is uh, compassion in the world. Compassion as one of those four Brahma Viharas, one of those four divine abodes, uh, Karuna, in Pali um, is uh, considered a sublime state. All of those four divine abodes are considered sublime states. And yet compassion requires suffering. Compassion is what metta turns into when it meets suffering in the world. 
the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. We are resonant and we're touched by suffering around us. And I always find that interesting that this sublime state, suffering is a prerequisite for it. How is that possible? Suffering certainly is not sublime and we don't wish it on anybody, but what it evokes in us is this capacity to care. And that is an amazing gift that we are wired up with. We're wired up to care. When you see somebody going through a, a hard time, it touches us if we are present for it and we have any kind of connection if our heart is open. It touches us, it actually touches us in the same place in our brain as if we're going through it ourselves. They, you probably are familiar with this uh, understanding of mirror neurons in the brain. If if you see somebody stub their toe and you really get it, and you go, ah, ouch. It's lighting up in the very same part of the brain that if it happened to you. Isn't that amazing? We're wired up for compassion. That's why movies are multi-million dollar, billion dollar enterprises because we are feeling the the pain of the heroine or the hero and we're rooting for them and maybe biting our nails, oh, will they make it? You know, because it's affecting us in that same way. And that's a beautiful quality. It didn't have to be that way. Have you ever thought about it? It didn't have to be that way. We could have just been wired up, you know, like ants, or I don't know how ants are wired up. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea, actually, you know. But I would imagine that an ant is just you know, knows what its job is and uh, uh, in my imagination of what that would be like. We didn't have to feel so deeply and are moved so much when we hear about suffering, but that's how it is. Uh, reminds me, I wanted to share with you a, a really um, interesting example of how we are all interconnected. I love from a, a book, it's my favorite book on compassion called The Compassionate Life by Mark Ian Barish. And he talks about going to this um, research center down in Santa Cruz called HeartMath um, and uh, uh, where they, they are measuring and giving uh, practices for uh, caring and compassion and connection. So he's visiting in this science lab and uh, the, the researcher uh, puts, a, a yogurt, uh, puts some yogurt in a Petri dish near him and places some electrodes in the dish. And the needle, it's connected to a, a, a needle, uh, um, to a meter, and the needle is just sitting there. And then the researcher asks him to think of a deeply disturbing emotional experience. And this is now him writing. Rummaging through memory, I had a sudden flash of my sister's death, and I was flooded with a surge of grief. At that very moment, all by itself, the needle on the meter buried itself in the red zone and then oscillated wildly back and forth. 
We hadn't touched anything. The box was hooked up to nothing except the yogurt. Strawberry, my favorite. <laughs> nothing in the room had changed but my feelings. When I switched my mental focus back to my surroundings, the needle went still. Okay, the researcher said, now think of an incident of physical pain. I called to mind a recent medical checkup that had involved taking several blood samples. The needle kit kicked fitfully, like a man whose sleep had been disturbed. He then had me remember a moment of profound embarrassment. I'm not telling. And again, the needle twitched abruptly as if in response. What was being revealed here he claimed, was that all living creatures from microorganisms to pets to people resonate to the field of the human heart. And I would imagine resonate to the field of life around them. Isn't that amazing? We are, it's not just a, a nice spiritual idea that we're interconnected. We affect each other. Just like you can feel somebody's energy even without looking at them, you sense somebody is going through something. We are, as I think I said to one group here, transmitter-receiver energy units that are continually affecting life around us and receive as well just these exchanges of energy. And we're wired up for compassion, this sublime state. <clears throat> and we're moved to express our caring. Martin Seligman in uh, The Father of Positive Psychology, I think I, I read his thing, maybe it was a late night I read the, um, uh, the, how positive psychology started, and he wrote this book, Authentic Happiness, and he says, the the, oh, and Jane had mentioned it in her talk about writing the gratitude letter. He says, true happiness, authentic happiness, comes from identifying our own strengths, our own gifts, what we've been given in life, and then expressing them in a spirit of contribution to others. That's the real happiness. Or as I, one of my favorite lines of all from Shanti Deva, the, the, um, who wrote The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, the Dalai Lama's Bible, so to speak. He says, awakening lifts us above poverty, above small-mindedness, lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. That's the real wealth, the wealth of giving to life. This is uh, the Dalai Lama who says, uh, if I can find it here. Is it? Somewhere here. Well, I know the quote. He says, if you want to be happy, practice compassion. If you want others to be happy, practice compassion. It's the same. <clears throat> so, and he, I love he has this, um, uh, this idea of selfish altruism. It feels good to care. 
and it feels good to make a difference in others' lives. And you might sense that you do something because it makes you feel good. Selfish altruism. He says, this is a good thing. Don't feel guilty about it. Go for the good feeling. You're allowed to enjoy that. You don't have to be a martyr in your caring. That would be unfortunate, wouldn't it? Who needs more martyrs when it can bring so much joy just by caring? However, you don't want to be in the role, as Ramdas says, in the role of the helper and make the other person the helpee what he calls helper's prison. Oh yes, I'm somebody that goes around and fixes everybody or takes care of them and they need me. Because then as soon as you get caught in that identity, you disempower the other person. And actually, if you're benefiting from it, you're both benefiting from the exchange. So it's not a, a, a one-up kind of a thing but rather, and you can, of course, see how you'll be on the receiving end of that probably many times in your life. So it's just this exchange of caring and it feels good to care. It also feels good and important to receive that care if you happen to be on the receiving end. Don't, don't, for those who are good at giving and not so good at receiving, don't deflect somebody's care. And uh, just to just go off on a little tangent here, but this is what's coming up uh, on Karma 101, where the, the power of a gift depends on the purity in the heart of the one giving, the purity of the gift, and the purity in the heart of the one receiving. So if you give somebody something and you ever have this happen, you give someone a gift and they say, oh, you shouldn't have done that. You know? Oh, why'd you do that? You, know? you think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> it certainly doesn't feel as good as when they say, oh, thank you so much. And they're able to receive. It actually increases the karma of the one giving So if you're on the receiving end, receive with grace. And if if you're on the giving end, know that you're getting just as much as the one who's receiving, if you have it in that spirit of true expression of caring. This is uh, from a a young woman who I uh, have uh, mentored who is a very engaged, um, uh, service-oriented young woman. She says, I think it's a very human thing to want to serve. It feeds something in the soul. If people look honestly, living their values counts more than money. If you're not aligned with your values, it eats at you. When you are, something in you grows and comes alive. Each one of us has our own hidden purpose inside and needs to uncover it and give it wings. 
Service is one of the things that gets us in touch with the most natural and true part of ourselves. So then the question comes, there's so much suffering in this world. How to let that expression of caring and compassion be a joyful one rather than burning out. How easy it is to be overwhelmed when we open up to the enormity of suffering, overwhelmed by our own caring heart. But as I said, compassion is a sublime state. So how can we express our caring without getting burned out, but rather feel nourished by it and in the process inspire others to do the same? That's, that's the real joy. So you're, you're nourished by your caring heart and you move others in that same way. We have, a, along with mirror neurons, there's this other uh, phenomenon that uh, research are quite f- researchers are familiar with. I think Jonathan Haidt coined it, the elevation response where when you see somebody do a noble act, you read about it in the paper or you see a a video on it or you read about it in in a book, it inspires you to do the same thing or to to get in touch with the the noble part of you. So we can be embodied agents of that to the extent that we are nourished by our caring heart. But to the extent that we're burdened, exhausted, burned out, that's not very inspiring. It might be inspiring on a limited level. Wow, look at them just burn themselves out. leaving it all out on the field, as we say in sports. But you're probably not going to be motivated to do the same. But how can you do it in a way that brings out the best in you, as one of my inspirations, uh, Julia Butterfly Hill says, to do it as a joyful responsibility. That's what I find such an important exploration. So one thing to keep in mind is that compassion needs to be balanced with the other of the Brahma Viharas that we hadn't mentioned really much yet, which is equanimity. There's loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And equanimity, as you can probably sense if you're not that familiar with the word, is a balance of mind, a balance of heart, a spaciousness. It's a lot like the meditations that 
uh, that we've been doing, Deborah yesterday and Howie today with the, with the big mind, a spaciousness that can hold all things. Equanimity is not indifference. That's the near enemy of equanimity. It looks like balance, but it's more whatever. You know, if you have a teen around, you know, whatever. That's not equanimity. Equanimity is whatever. I hope you get the difference. Yeah. It's so interesting how the same word has such a different meaning, whatever. And the, the most beautiful archetype of this is, is right in the back of the room, Kuan Yin on, uh, on the back altar. You can just take a look for a moment. Look, look at her. Kuan Yin on the right is the embodiment of compassion. And there she is hearing all the cries of the world and responding. And look at how relaxed she is. She hears the cries of the world, but is not tearing her her heart out. She's saying, and this is part of life too. And how can I meet it with a, a wise response that still maintains my, my balance and my centeredness and really is, is kind of understanding uh, that famous serenity prayer, grant me the courage to change the things I can, the serenity to accept the things I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. To see if you can do something and make a difference, without taking on the identity of being the helper, if you can make a difference because it feels right and it feels good, great. But even then, to not do it from attachment or from fear or from uh, anger, but to see this is what needs to be done. Equanimity is so powerful. I'll just uh, maybe share with you a, an equanimity um, story of a number of years ago when I was practicing at, um, at IMS, a six-week period of Brahma Vihara practice. And uh, the last chunk of time was the equanimity practice. And the, the formal equanimity um, um, phrases are Uh, the classical ones, uh, you are the owner of your karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends on your choices and habits and actions, not only on my wishes for you. Which is really seeing everyone has their own unfolding. And at first it seems kind of cool, but it's actually very powerful to see I can't fix or take, any, take somebody's karma away from them and the lessons that they need to learn that the Dharma, that life is giving them. And after a while, I kind of got into it. Oh, wow. Where I can hold that, all that caring with a place that says, and this is how it is. And it's not up to me 
to fix what's out of my capacity. And I had this one meditation, it was a very powerful one for me, a, 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 a milestone in my practice where I was, in this one practice, I, I was putting different people in a chair in front of me and kind of telling them the, the, the news, the good news. I put Jane in, you know, hello dear, you are the owner of your karma, your happiness and happiness, and all of that, <laughs> with, with a lot of care. And I put my other friends and my, uh, and my uh, teachers and all. And then my, our son, Adam, who was 10 at the time, popped up in the chair. And all of a sudden, it was a very different thing. You are the owner of your karma, Adam. Your happiness and unhappiness depends on your choices and habits and actions, not on my wishes for you. And then I had what I call my clockwork orange sitting. If you've ever seen the movie Clockwork Orange, where they they program this guy and, and kind of brainwash him by opening his eyelids and, and so he can't not see all of these horrible images one after another. And I went through the next hour, more than an hour, of every awful thing that a parent can imagine for a child. Drug addiction, you, know, you are owner of your karma. Accidents, disease, all kinds of things. I won't get into it. And each t I'd say it, and then I'd have this image, and <gasps> ooh, that you are owner of your karma. And I, after a while, I realized as much as I love that guy, I can't keep him from learning the lessons that he needs to learn in this lifetime. Just like my parents couldn't do that for me and yours for you, you know, or the Buddha's father for him, as much as he tried to make it all right so, the, so that the prince would never leave. And it was a very, it was a turning point in my parenting because at some point I realized the, that whole, all of those words turned into Adam, I honor your life's journey. I'm here for you, cheering for you, doing whatever I can to support you in a skillful way, and you've got your life to live. So this is compassion balanced with equanimity and seeing, okay, I'll do what I can, but it's not up to me to save the world or to, um, to disempower somebody by, by me becoming the rescuer when I can't fix. Not to be afraid to go in there and do what is appropriate and skillful and it can, but not from that place of attachment, but from that place of this is how it is and I'll do my part from love. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, compassion is a verb. It's more than just feeling somebody's pain. The near enemy of compassion is pity, where your heart is touched, but there's a contraction there. Oh, I'm, 
I'm so sorry. I'm just thinking there's a Zen story where uh, this guy is on his way to the Zen monastery and he sees this um, family in very bad conditions, destitute con conditions on the side of the road. And he goes to the Zen master and he says, uh, oh, that family, it's so, um, it was so sad to see what their karma has led them to. And the Zen master turns and says, how do you know it's not your karma to help them? So, compassion is a verb. You do what you can with that place of balance, but it's not fixing. Often, what's most needed is just being a loving presence, a caring presence. When you're going through a hard time, that's often the most important thing that you need just somebody to understand. You ever go through a, a, a go through a hard time and somebody says, you know, oh God, I care so much about you. Oh, this is killing me. I just, it's just tearing me apart to see what you're going through. How does that feel? <laughs> then you got to take care of them. It was bad enough to begin with. But if somebody says, oh. I just want you to know, I care so much about you. I'm right here with you and right here for you. And you can count on me. But they're not trying to take anything away. That in itself is a healing environment. And there are these studies that have shown that if somebody is going through physical pain or psychological pain, emotional pain, that if somebody else holds their hand, their threshold for pain is much greater. And we all know this. When we feel so alone, it sometimes is unbearable. But when we call a friend and, or somebody is there saying, wow, I'm right here with you. Ah, it's like they're sharing your pain and you both feel uplifted by that connection. There's a story of, uh, I love from Leo Biscaglia, who was this um, uh, very wise teacher. He, he passed away uh, a while ago. And he was asked to be a judge for the contest of the most caring child. <laughs> this is in Chicken Soup for the Soul, if you wanna know the source. And, uh, and the winner was this four-year-old boy whose mother told the story. And she said, well, our next door neighbor, this elderly uh, gentleman who'd been uh, married for many, many decades to his beloved wife, um, she died and he became um, a widower. And he was having a deep grieving period just sobbing, you know, day after day um, for quite some, for a while. And uh, one day the mother and the boy were outside and the, the man was across the way in the next house uh, sitting on his porch and, uh, and sobbing. And the boy just spontaneously went over to the other house and sat down uh, and uh, with him and after a while, after a very short while, the man just uh, 
quieted down and became very calm and peaceful. And then the boy came back to the mother and she said, what did you say to him? It was like magic. And he said, oh, I didn't say anything. I just sat in his lap and helped him cry. That's often all we need is just someone to help us cry. However, there are some times when more than that is needed. When direct action and fearless action is needed. As Angelus Arian, wonderful wisdom teacher who passed away a few years ago, said, action absorbs anxiety. And especially these days, there is so much suffering, so much suffering in the world, so much suffering on every level, and particularly at this moment in the human experiment and this planet's experiment where we have never been so capable of destroying ourselves and life on this planet. And there's a kind of grieving that we probably, anyone who looks at the at the situation um, will go through. But that's where we need compassionate, caring, skillful, wise action more than ever. Action absorbs anxiety. And as I think uh, we, jo we both mentioned about uh, that statement, we're in a race between fear and consciousness. And while there's never been as much to be afraid of and, um, and uh, concerned and wondering if we'll make it and, uh, and wondering about all the suffering coming down, there's never been as much consciousness ever on this planet. Never. So here we are, we can either be adding to the fear or adding to the consciousness. And sometimes we're adding to both, of course. It's natural to be afraid and concerned and, and wonder, but if that's what we lead with, we're not really contributing what is needed at this time. So I think of us all as agents of consciousness, every one of us that learns more and more to find a place of peace inside and caring inside and wisdom. And that's what we bring forth to others. And it's contagious just like those mirror neurons are at work. And we can inspire each other if we somehow 
stay connected to a place of centeredness and fierce compassion that requires courage, fearlessness, and standing in truth. The way I see it, just like in the spiritual journey, uh, there is, uh, perhaps you're familiar with this, uh, this phrase of, uh, and these writings by St. John of the Cross, the dark night of the soul in Christian uh, um, teachings. And it kind of, it's like the hero's journey where you are going through your scariest times and it's uh, often an arc on a retreat where you meet your most difficult places inside. That's part of the process and see, oh, I can wake up to this too and become stronger. That's the hero's journey. That's the Luke Skywalker as the, the Jedi master or Katniss Everdeen or uh, whatever. Uh, whatever hero or Jesus or Buddha or all, all the great heroes have faced their most scary places and that's what allowed them to grow. And as Andrew Harvey says, we are right now, one way to think of this, we are in the dark night of the species where we are going through scary times and this is part of our waking up. Like I said before, suffering can be the cause for awakening and faith to arise. So we will all wake up sooner or later. And I, I would, um, I don't know if you feel this way, but for me it's striking how quickly things are moving as far as our planet waking up. So we will wake up sooner or later, all of us, and whatever we can do to make it on the sooner side, <laughs> there's less suffering. So rather than saying, oh, what's the point? We do what we can to lessen the suffering by waking up sooner and helping others wake up as well. <clears throat> Isn't that exciting? To think that, oh, I can make a difference. Not because it's up to you to save the world. That's way too much to take on. But it's up to you to do your part from a place of love and caring and going underneath if there is, and whatever it is that touches you. For me, climate is, has been a big issue. Um, but as Andrew Harvey says, follow your heartbreak. Wherever your heart is breaking, let that be the place that you, your action absorbs the anxiety. But for me, um, it's really exciting to think that if I can come, if I can get underneath my 
outrage and my anger and my frustration and my despair to a place underneath. I feel all those things because I care. And if you can get in touch with your care and your love, that's so much more magnetizing than the despair and hopelessness. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is the, uh, is the premier translator of all the, the great, um, the Pali canon in Theravadan Buddhism, all the big thick books, the middle length discourses and the connected discourses and all of these things is Bhikkhu Bodhi, a brilliant mind who is also a very fierce activist. And this is what he says in an essay that you can Google called A Challenge to Buddhists. He says, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential. Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives can present only a resigned quietism. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. And that includes the planet. He hadn't written that in this point, but I know he is a deep, caring uh, climate activist. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of the Dharma. And I believe it also points in a direction that Buddhism should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. So to see your practice more than just something that makes you feel good and reduces your stress and maybe even awakens some joy. It is something that becomes a gift to the world as you become an agent of consciousness. It's contagious. But how to open up to all of that without getting swept up? First, to remember that it's not your job to save the world. It's your job to do your part and do it from joy. Do it because you're expressing your caring. This is uh, Thomas Merton who says that an activist has to come to terms with the fact that what is done may ultimately be fruitless but that you're not doing it solely for the hope of results, you get used to this idea. You start more and more to concentrate on the value, the rightness, the truth of what you do for itself. And there's a, a, a story in the Talmud that similarly says, if the world were ending and you knew that nothing would make a difference, 
you'd still do what's most aligned with the heart's deepest values. Because it just feels good to do the right thing. But if you come from caring and love, that in itself sparks that in others. Joanna Macy, who is one of the most inspiring Dharma teachers and activists, um, she's written a number of books and one of them is called Active Hope. Active Hope. And she said, remember, I, 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 I used to talk with her about hope and she said, I hate that word, hope. It's, it's, it's so... Uh, you know, it, 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 there's a, a, a line, uh, Seneca says, you cease to be afraid when you cease to hope because hope is accompanied by fear. You know, I hope it'll work out. But then she wrote this book on hope, active hope. And she says, active hope is identifying the outcomes we hope for and then playing our part in bringing them about and focusing on what we deeply long for and then proceed to take determined steps in that direction, becoming an active participant in bringing about what we hope for. But you let go of the timetable and of the report card and you just do your part because it feels good. And she says in this spiral of from her work that reconnects, you come from gratitude. How amazing this planet is. How much it gives us. And then you honor the pain. You have to feel the pain and grieve. And I've gone through a few different periods of grieving. And then you see with new eyes what you can contribute from that open-heartedness, from that fierceness, from that courage, and then you go forth and do it. And it's happening. I don't know if you saw a couple of weeks ago, it didn't really make the news here, but around the world, uh, it was almost two weeks ago, May 24th, there was a strike around the world, children. How many people are familiar, are familiar with that? Just uh, not all that many handfuls. One of the most inspiring people that, that really moves me is this, the Swedish girl Greta Thunberg, who I highly recommend you check her out. And she's been doing a strike for the last year and a half in Sweden on climate uh, protesting that governments actually speak the truth. And it's caught on. And May 24th, there were 1,600 cities around the world, over a million children. And you see clips. It didn't make our news. You have to hunt for it. Melbourne, 1,000 children in the streets. Um, Berlin, the same. The UK, all over. There's something happening that we can join. And it's often the young people that, that lead us. The next one, by the way, which will probably get a whole lot more airplay because there's more lead up time is September 20th. Uh, and she's gonna be coming to the United Nations. She doesn't fly, but she's gonna take a boat uh, and, uh, and lead a, 
and lead a, um, uh, a strike that invites adults as well. There's something happening here. Mm. And this will require courage and fearlessness and standing in your truth because it feels right. There's a power in standing in your truth, what Gandhi called satyagraha, the truth force. And I bet most everybody here knows when they're just, they have to say what's true, even if it's scary, because it's what's true. Let that be the place that your caring comes from. So to end this, I wanted to share with you uh, a practice that for me is, and I share about this in uh, Awakening Joy, that is a key to this getting in touch with our caring. And that is um, an expression of the bodhisattva ideal. Bodhisattva, as probably most of you know, is seeing your own awakening in the context of benefiting others. The Bodhisattva vow, where your own well-being is done as a gift to others. And I had my own Bodhisattva vow when I didn't even know the concept when I was a in, in college many years ago, and I was really in a depressed state. I'd been reading a whole lot of existential philosophy and, and Camus and Sartre, and it didn't mean anything, and what's the point? And uh, you know, you, you're born, you live for a while and suffer, and then you die, you know. <laughs> and uh, I was in a, not a very happy state for quite quite, a, quite a, a chunk of time. And one day I looked out at the Queens College cafeteria where I was going to school, a huge cafeteria, and I looked at the sea of humanity and I saw everyone in that large hall just wanted to be happy. And I thought to myself, well, maybe if I could bring a little bit more happiness into the world, that would give my life meaning. I didn't know how I was going to do it because I wasn't very happy myself. (laughs) But that set me on a course. And we can all have our own bodhisattva vow, whether or not you take it formally with the the Dalai Lama or or some other uh, great teacher, or you take it just within yourself. And I wanted to... Uh, perhaps invite us to take our own vow, our own personal bodhisattva vow. So I'd like you to um, sit up. And here we've been playing around with this awakening joy stuff for the last week. And Let's just see it in the context of offering something to the world. So just seeing 
your own well-being, how can or can you imagine as you become more and more connected to your caring heart, to your wise heart, to your loving heart, Can you see that in the context of offering something of value to the world? So just take a few moments to ask yourself what words would sincerely convey that wish in a way that uplifts your heart. Maybe something like, may my happiness lead to the happiness of others. May I express my caring in a beneficial way. Whatever the words are, see your own practice as a gift to the world that will so benefit from your own consciousness and caring. And when you find the phrase that resonates with you, just silently state those words as a promise to yourself. More than a wish, if you can get in touch with it as a vow, Connect with the sincerity of intention that those words express. And notice how it feels. Notice how it feels to express your caring in that way. And take this with you as you leave the retreat, as you see your practice in the context of that caring. And let it be a, a guiding light and inspiration, lifting you above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. And I'll end with this passage along these lines from the great uh, Tibetan master Nyosho Kempo. We're not practicing for ourselves alone. Since everyone is involved and included in the great scope of this perfectly pure motivation to benefit others, whatever else we might do is secondary to that. 
And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, and transformed in us and become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. Thank you very much for your attention. I hope that you can get a sense of, even though there's suffering in the world, the joy of expressing your caring heart is a very powerful component of awakening joy. So enjoy the night air and we'll come back in, uh, in about 20 minutes for last sitting and uh, another little treat for you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.